I mean, I start, you know, we, we was going to keep it flowing. I'm here and podcasting with my boy Stacy Lewis. Uh, it's going to be dope. We're talking about LGBTQ uh, issues, and uh, so stay tuned for that episode. Uh, let me put this uh, location. Stacy's on Melrose. Boom. Dundreezy. Um, thank you for cutting the AC off. Uh, it's yes, hot sir. down here. It and, is. Uh, yeah, lift it up just a little bit. Uh, there you go. Boom. Done. Um, so, Stacy, you've been in Phoenix for how long? 20 years this month. 20 years 20 this years. month. You're, you just turned 68. I did. Uh, happy birthday. Happy thank belated you. birthday. <laughs> thank uh, you. You look strong. Oh, it's, yeah. the, it's the racquetball game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I used to play racquetball when I was in uh, college, and it was always the the old dudes that was killing me. It's a it, game of skill. It's definitely a game of skill. Yeah. How long have you been playing? Uh, since I was 19. Okay. All right. Um, and so we are here at uh, now, your name's Stacy Lewis, and we are here at Stacy's on Melrose. No, Stacy's at Melrose. Stacy's at Melrose. Do people say Stacy's on Melrose? All the it? time. And, um, you know, it's Melrose is the one-mile strip here in Phoenix, Central Phoenix on 7th Avenue between a couple of major roads. And it's just sort of become the gayborhood of Phoenix. The gayborhood. Yeah. Oh you know, man, have I didn't even know everywhere. that was a word. Gayborhood? <laughs> Come on, son. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> you know, the gayborhoods in all of the major cities like Atlanta and San Francisco and DC and uh, everywhere, they're just decreasing in numbers of bars because we gays feel so comfortable going out and mixing with the straights now and there's not really as big of a fear of being trashed or picked on or talked badly about or anything like that so uh, in the 20 years i've been in phoenix we've gone from 38 gay and lesbian bars to 19. so that to me sounds like progress absolutely right it is it's like it's like almost with the bathrooms right like it's i, I couldn't believe how fast we went from Male and female restrooms, <laughs> right? To um, to all gender restrooms. Absolutely, like mine here. And uh, now, have you always been comfortable uh, being gay, or was there? Well, I when I was a young teenager, I experienced sex with both male and female, and I decided I liked sex. It didn't matter with who. And uh, growing up. I sort of started realizing what my lifestyle, which lifestyle I wanted to have. But there was a lot of pressures back in the late 60s and early 70s when I was growing up. And I had seven really good buddies in the same fraternity as me. And they were all getting married. And I was dating a woman who I loved. But, you know, I finally realized years later she wasn't exactly what I needed in my life. So I got married back in the mid-60s, had a child, loved the woman still to this day, and I have no qualms about being gay, none whatsoever. And how, I mean, that sounds so smooth. Yeah. But that transition had to be very challenging 
to one because you had experiment, like you said, with uh, not experiment, but you had been with both men and women. Correct. Before getting married. Right. And and so what was it that um, then led you to getting married to a woman? Well, like I said, it was the peer pressure. Gotcha. Everybody else was doing it. Uh, Becky and I, my my ex-wife, were dating during right. through all this. I don't think I was comfortable enough with the gay title back then to break away and let everybody know how I felt. So I went with what everyone else was doing and probably cheated myself. But on the other hand, I had a wonderful marriage. I have a wonderful child. And my ex-wife and I and my daughter are three best friends. We talk quite often. Wow. How old yep. is your daughter now? 41. 41? <laughs> yo, Stacy, you was getting it in early, yo. You just knocked it out, huh? Yeah. Uh, but that's how people did it back then. Everybody it got is. married in their 20s. Yep. Which I, I think um, it's so, I don't know if it's good or bad that uh, people are getting married later because, it, to me, it, it takes the grandparents out the picture. If, if you know when you're having, if you're having kids in your twenties, then your grandparents are usually like in their late fifties or they're still young enough to run around and play with the kids. Right. But right. now people are waiting until almost like forty. I know. Grandma's too old to be they're running around. Now, she ain't yeah. got the back for all that. Let's go visit grandma. It's no longer yeah. <laughs> grandma's coming over to take you out. Wow. Yeah. Right, right, right. The um, Now, where are you from? Uh, Newport News, Virginia for 28 years, then 20 years in Richmond, Virginia, right, where my daughter was born, uh -huh. and then moved here 20 years ago. So I've spent a third, a third, a third, but most of it in Virginia. I'm really happy about being in the heat. Yeah. As you said earlier, my toes are all gone, missing three fingertips, moved out here 20 years ago, and I have had no problem with my circulation since because of the extraneous heat. Um, the, uh, same thing. I slept like a baby last night. Yeah. And when I come to uh, Phoenix or I go to uh, Miami, I feel like a champ. Yeah. Like, this is where I got to move to. Yeah. In L.A., I feel all creaky, and uh, even though it's warm, that it's not a good heat. Right. And I think partly because of the smog also, there's, yeah. there's a lot yeah. of issues there. I agree. And stuff like that. So um, you not only own Stacy's at Melrose, but you're also uh, a strong activist in the LGBTQIA. I am. And so what kind of work are you doing? Well, uh, I am on the Phoenix Pride Board. Okay. Have been for three years now. Uh, I am extremely proud to be on that on that board and be able to do all of the things that we do. We do a lot of uh, giving from the organization, and it's great being part of choosing what's going to happen and who's going to get it and how we're going to make the money. Right. It's it's a great process. Uh, I'm on the strategic planning. Uh, committee for the board. Uh -huh. I'm also a member of the uh, Gay Bowling Phoenix board. Uh, that meeting's tomorrow morning. <laughs> uh, what else am I? I'm a member of the the Melrose uh, Society. There's a big uh, along Melrose. All of the businesses have what we call SAMA Seventh Avenue Merchant Association. Okay. I'm quite active in that. 
and I am not on the boards of anything else, but whatever I can do to help any of the LGBTQIAP community nonprofits, I do it. If they want to have a fundraiser here, they can. If they want me to, to join them at a big dinner to help them, I do. Uh, one of them named me Man of the Year. Phoenix Pride made, uh, made me the Grand Marshal two years ago, three years ago. Wow. It's, it's quite nice to be recognized, but more than being recognized, I'm, I really enjoy giving and helping others. Now, because as we mentioned earlier, there are fewer gay bars. Right. Bathrooms are all gender. Now, I mean, not everywhere, obviously. Right. We're, we're, we live in very progressive right. parts of the country. Um, what are uh, th what's the gay community struggling with today? On a, I guess uh, mentally, like what are some of the uh, that that's a tough one. You know the uh, the reversals and some of the things that have happened in the past with LGBTQ service people mm -hmm. and uh, having some of those rights removed. Like what? But, uh, can you go into uh, detail about? I have that. to think of the word transgendered are no longer allowed to I, I can't remember exactly okay. what the law did but it reversed something that was done six eight years ago uh -huh. uh, a lot of people in the community are still not quite comfy because of I, I, I don't want to make this political but because of far-right extremists and I don't think we have a big problem with that here in Phoenix I consider Phoenix when I first moved here, I considered it a transient city, yeah. but now I'm calling it a go-to city. Uh, it's amazing how many people are moving here from uh, LA, where you're stationed, and uh, San Diego, and a lot of people from New Mexico, Denver people, because of the cold probably, and we're, we're getting quite a few New Yorkers and Floridians moving to Phoenix for the weather. The Floridians are tired of the uh, of the humidity. The New Yorkers are tired of the cold. So I I look as a at Phoenix and Arizona as a go to place now, not just stop by for a while. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different type of immigration situation, Absolutely. right? It's like people, f Americans, you know, uh, flooding uh, Phoenix. It you is. know, uh, I have <laughs> seen more apartment complexes in the past seven years, I'd say, mm -hmm. appear all over the city. Right. And they're building a multitude more of the same thing. How, now, let's, let's go back a little bit. All right. What was that conversation like with your wife? Like, was it was it smooth that she was like, always knew or I, I kind of suspected or was it like dishes flying? No, uh, I had left her in 2000, no, I'm sorry, 90, mm -hmm. and moved in with a guy I had met, and we amicably separated. I was going out quite often after work to be with him, and one day we met before, a, as we got home from work, and after a discussion he and I had the night before, him saying, why aren't you living with me? So I said, I'll be back tomorrow night. So I, we met at the top of the steps after work, and I said, I think we need to have a little break from each other, and she agreed. She said, you know, that's fine. If you need anything or if I need anything, we're still friends. So four years later, after not only 
she and I and my boyfriend, which she had no idea, and my daughter going out to dinner, it would be a mix of two or three or all of us. And one night she and I went out to dinner and I took her home and we were sitting there just chatting in the living room and she said to me, so why all of a sudden did you want a divorce last year after all the, you know, three years of doing this and then all of a sudden you pushed for a divorce? And I said, do we really have to talk about that right now? We're having such a great time. And she said, well, now you put it that way, I gotta know. So I said, well, you know, Jimmy, she said, yeah, I know Jimmy. Jimmy's not my roommate. Jimmy's my lover. I'm gay. And her response was to sit back for 20, 30 seconds, think about it, and sit forward. And she said to me, so all those nights you didn't come home after work, you weren't out with other women. And my heartfelt response was, no, Becky, I love you, always loved you, and still love you, but you just weren't 100% what I needed in my life. And she hugged me and cried. And we've still been friends, like I said, for years. She was just grateful you weren't with other women. Yes. Wow. Yes. And she never knew. Never, nobody in my life ever figured out I had been, I was gay and hiding it all those years. My mom, my father had already passed away when I sort of came out. And my sister, my brother, my daughter, nobody. Can I tell you what my daughter said when I told her? Yeah, how old was she at the time? She was 15, just getting ready to turn 16. Wow. We were on, yeah, we were on the way back from her and I only going to visit relatives in New York. And I woke her up from a sleep in the car 20 miles from home. And I said, so, Steph, what would you think if someone you really, I was stuttering. What do you think if someone you have loved all your life and loved more than you can ever imagine wasn't really who they said they were and she was trying to uh you know wake up and she said daddy what the hell are you trying to say i said stephanie i'm gay <laughs> choke up here a little she said daddy i don't care who or what you are i love you for who you are and called me the next morning before going to school and said, Daddy, Daddy, can I tell all my friends you're gay? And I said, sure. You're the most important person in my life. You tell them all. Wow. Yeah, it was quite the night. You know what I love about that story is that um, teenage girls get such a bad rap. Yeah, you they know, do. It's like, oh, you get, you have a girl. Oh, they're 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 evil. They're <laughs> they're, they're mischievous. You know that movie, Mean Girls, with yeah. Lindsay Lohan, and and your daughter, in the pocket, right? Yeah. It wasn't premeditated. Nothing. It was in the moment, and she was just like, I don't care who or what you are. I love you. Just like you are. So powerful. You know, I find. And, and this is probably a, a, a medical knowledge that is known, but I really find that women in their teens mature much more quickly than men. Oh, it's physiological. Yes, it is. So it, it's a good thing for me at that instance because she was pretty cool chick. She had been through four or five months of doing something that her mother and I didn't approve of. And my, her mother, uh, Becky, and I said, just have a good time. Just be safe. Don't do anything you shouldn't. And three or four or five months later, she was back on board with us. You know, my mom kind of had the same parenting uh, technique with myself. It was like, 
just as long as you're going to school and going to work, that's all that matters. Right. right? That means everything else is once you stop doing one of those, I know something is amiss. And uh, and and I think it's great to have boundaries, set boundaries with kids, but not to be controlling and sound like. For your daughter to respond like that, it sounds like the way you and your wife had been raising her. That's correct. Was you know, when she was a small child, she w she started saying, "I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that." And we said, "Listen, here's the here's the rule that we're going to live by. We tell you to do something. You have our permission." to ask us why, voice your opinion on why you don't want it that way or want it differently, and we'll discuss it, but the final word is ours. I think it was the turning point in her childhood. You, you empowered her. You we said, did. you have a voice. You have a what voice. What you think matters. Yes. And then that came back to you. Yeah, it did. Wow. Yeah. You can choke up, man. I see. I did. You know, it's I like, just man, wiped my tears. <laughs> And so how long had now are you and I'm sorry, what's your what was your lover's name at the time? Jimmy. Jimmy. Are you and Jimmy still together? Uh, no, we we were together seven years and because of distance for a job, it, okay. it just didn't work out. Okay. He's living in North Carolina. I'm going to see him in September when I go to Newport News, Virginia for my fifty year high school reunion. Wow. And they, and they don't really know. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh no, all of them know. Oh, they all know. Okay. I am out to everyone. Okay. All right. Are you sent out an email, text message? No, my Facebook page tells it all. Got you. Got yeah. You. I mean, I'm not super gay, uh, flamboyant. Right. But I have uh, no holds barred. I say whatever I want. So I, I would imagine being so established in this community and being a part of so many different groups, I imagine a lot of uh, younger kids or teenagers or People in college are coming to you struggling with their identity and sexuality and things like that. Um, yeah. What, what, first, what kind of things are they saying to you? And then how are you guiding them through? Well, once again, I, I tell them what I just told you. They asked me, you know, how did you handle this? And I said, for one thing, I wasn't brave like you and came out when I probably should because mm -hmm. I wasn't sure of myself. But you are, and I'm really proud of you for being that way. But when I came out, I came out proud. I did not worry about bullying. I just became the Stacy that I thought I should be. And I'm really proud to say that people like you come to me for advice because you see how not just successful at the bar, but successful in the community. Absolutely. It's, it's, that's really the most important thing that you can do when somebody comes to you for advice is to uh, validate how they um, feel. Yes. Right. And let them know that it takes a lot of courage to ask for help. Right. It does. Um, versus saying, oh, you can figure that out yourself or why are you coming to me with I this? I would never do that. Right. I don't care what I'm in the middle of here. If sure. somebody needs help and especially that kind of help, I am right there. And then I, I'm sure a part of it is them, how do they bring it up to their friends? Or, you know, how do they let the world know? How are you coaching them through that? That that question was posed to me maybe just two years ago. And I said, so how do you feel about who you are? And they said, I feel pretty good about it. I said, that's how you need to approach that with your friends. 
you need to go to them and say something like, I have something to tell you guys that I'm really proud of, and I want, I hope that you will understand and support me in my new feelings or, or all of my life feelings that right. I'm just now finally willing to talk about. So it, it's, I think it's amazing of advice. Have you seen a difference between uh, how women are approaching you who may be struggling with coming out as lesbian versus men? Has there been a, a gender difference? No. Or no, I, I think having been in this community for 20 years, being a bartender for 14, owning a bar for six, yeah. I'm going to say 75%, maybe 65, 70% of the gay population knows me. Mm -hmm. And when they walk into the bar and they've never been here and don't know me, they even recognize me because they've been on Stacy's at Melrose Facebook page or my personal one. And, uh, you know, they'll walk up and introduce themselves. And after a while, they feel comfortable with me. It doesn't take me long. The uh, There's a lot more TV shows now with, you know, from the reality TV shows yeah. to uh, just regular TV shows that have gay characters in yep. them. Uh, it seems to be more positive and more, like, uh, less caricature. Right. Right? Back right. in the day, if you were gay, it was like this obvious, like, gay, character, yeah. flamboyant. And you still see some of that for comedic effect. You do. Uh, and so how are you feeling about as how we as society are, are handling, handling that? Yeah. Our, and, I, and addressing it? I'll be honest. I don't watch much TV right. at all, reality shows or anything. I read the news. I listen to the news, a little radio. I see, I'm glad to see the evolving that has happened with how the production companies are presenting the gays as, as you called it, what did you call it, uh, flamboyant gays oh, right. in a show. It's just one small character to, the, to now we have full-on uh, gay shows, reality shows, and what was the one with the two guys and the girls? The girl with the really high voice. Two guys. Um, it, it was uh, it, right. The right. two guys were gay, and I just thought that was monumental when that came out. Fancy. That's been years. Right, right. Because it, it creates something to talk about. It, it, it normalizes the whole, and then you know more people as as we see it. And I think that's like part of, uh, like when we call people racist or we label people. I, I think most of it is just a lack of exposure. Right. 100%. Can I tell you a story? Go ahead, please. In 1964, I had 63. I had gone to a Catholic school for five years. And, you know, next to me on this side was a Latina guy. On this side was a Asian guy. In front of me was, uh, uh, I don't know, a black guy or girl. And behind me, I did not ever until... I was 10 years old, 11 years old, know that there was bigotry in this world. Because I grew up in an, in an atmosphere at this school that I was just not exposed to it. Because we all got along. We'd go out on the playground and play kickball together. I didn't know that the black girl was treated the way she was or the Hispanic guy was treated the way he... I had no idea, so I, I'm going to tell this and probably break up again. In 64, when the race riots broke out, 
with the blacks. Mm -hmm. I was standing in front of my father's beer place, uh, beer joint, and I was standing out front on the sidewalk, and I'm like, what are all these black people doing here? What are all these cops doing here? My father runs out, grabs me by the arm, and physically pulled me back into the bar and said, don't be out there. I said, what's going on? And he explained it to me. It tore me up. It tore me up. I just couldn't understand or fathom that that was happening. It was a pivotal moment in my life. That's probably why who I am today is the way I am. It, 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 we, it seems like we all have that turning point yeah. early on in yeah. our life. I had a, had a similar situation. I, I, it, I mean, it pales in comparison to the riots, Yeah. right? Yeah. But I was maybe nine years old. There's, excuse, we have to excuse, uh, there's uh, construction going on in the background. <laughs> but, um, and I was at a, uh, a hot dog place. And two cops walk in, two two white cops walk in, and I guess the owner had called them because there was a, there was a disturbance right before I had gotten there, and the cops are like, "All right, where is he? Who's the guy?" And the owner's like, "Ah, oh, he left. He's not here anymore." And then the white cop leans into the owner, is like, "Just tell me, was he black or white?" Yeah. Or, or, or he goes, "What color was he?" Yeah. And the owner was like, "Black," and the cop was like, "That figures." And he said it so loud that everybody in there could hear. And I was so angry because there were other adult black people in there who I thought were going to stand up and say something to the cop. And I felt so hopeless in that moment. Yeah. Um, and hopeless is not the word, but powerless. Powerless. Right. Powerless in that moment. And I feel like a part of me has been driven by that. Like, you know, why I get good grades, why I study, why I read. I feel like I'm always trying to prove myself that, like, yes, are, do black people rob and do this and do that? Sure. But white people do it, too. Everybody but, does. But everybody does it. Yeah. Every culture does it. Yeah. Men do it. Women do it. Children right. do it. Uh, old people do Especially old people. I have a friend <laughs> who used to work. They are quite crafty, They're aren't very they? crafty. <laughs> I mean, especially with food. You ever, if you ever go to a farmer's market, those old ladies, they just, they just have their little way with those grapes and, uh, and, 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 and all types of <coughs> free samples. <laughs> but uh, I have a friend. She works security uh, for banks. And she uh, oversees the security cameras for uh, uh, all the banks in her district, like within, like, on, like, on the West Coast. Uh-huh. All right? And she said around the holidays, they are robbed more by elderly people who just want a couple hundred dollars to buy gifts for their kids. It's so crazy. I know, it, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right at all. But it's just so fascinating that, you know, the, uh, you know what, we, what we think of as uh, the thieves or the robbers, and then you really look at the stats, and you're like, what demographic is doing what, you know? So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think we all have that, we all have that pivotal moment. And that, but, you know, but that was a good moment for you because – it's that moment that's led you to do the work that you're doing. You saw something now. needed to be done. Absolutely. You did. Right, Let it, me ask you. Yeah. Ask have me. you ever stolen anything? All the time. 
I, when I was six years old, stole a candy bar. Yeah. And I couldn't even eat it when I got out of there. I was so embarrassed. Oh, no. And I just, I, I love these life lessons that we learn. Right, right. You with the cop saying that and me yeah. with the candy. And it's just amazing how people are have come so far. And I think we still yet have a whole lot more to do, all of us. There's, you know, but, but that's what keeps life worth living. Yeah. Is because there's always something to do. That's why we hear construction in the background right now, right? It's yes. like the, the club is built, has been here for decades. Decades. But there's still work to be done. Yeah. You're 68. You're still playing racquetball. You're not. <laughs> you're not turning down. Turn down for what? Right? Heck no. Sixty-seven. And so, all right. <laughs> so let's go back again because you <laughs> talked about. Because I shook your hand, and I was like, I, f- I feel like uh, there's a uh, there's some space in between. <laughs> I'm <was laughs> like, missing going my on? index finger and middle finger on my right hand. Right, and then, and uh, I love shaking hands with people. Uh-huh. And then I go like that with those two uh, nubs. Yeah. And they're like, what the heck? <laughs> it's kind of like the uh, in, when you're in school and you got the zzzz yeah. in the middle of the hand. The buzzers, you're like, wait, what's yeah. going on? And so, but you're also missing toes? I have no toes. They're Hold all up, gone. Hold on, man. Okay. So, my boy. Oh, man. <laughs> no, come on. All gone. Because you beat my boy in <laughs> racquetball, but I've been told that you need your big toe for balance. So, how are you even walking? You know, when this all happened, the, the second toe I lost was my big one. Okay. I lost the index toe on my right foot. When I lost the big one, it, I went through so much pain with it. They, with gangrene, they cut the half off. Four or five months later, they had to take the rest off. Well, I was so not able to walk on my foot because of the pain from gangrene that when the gangrene was gone, I kept walking like that just from memory. And I guess I just started bearing down on it more and more. Wow. And then I lost all the toes on the left foot all at once. And the pain was so great that when it was over, big deal. The only thing I can't do is lean forward. (laughs) Um, how? Oh, you can't lean I, forward. Yeah, if if someone comes up to me and says hi, Stacy, and hugs me and pulls <laughs> me forward, they're gonna have me in their lap. <laughs> so I went and took a shower after Cameron and I played ball, uh, racquetball yesterday. And I always have rubber moccasins because I cannot walk on hard surfaces. Gotcha. So I went to the shower and I'm like holding both walls, walking on my heels. It was hard. I got moccasins now. I'll carry it there. Yeah, so yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> at what age did this happen? What? Uh, the, the started in 76 with the first toe, and the last finger was in 89. So how old were you at 89? Uh, About. Uh, 48. Oh, you and your, oh for, okay, okay, okay. I was wondering, because I can't imagine trying to date with no toes. Like, like when you bring that up, you know what I'm saying? Like, like of all the things a woman thinks you, you're going to tell her, you know, like that has, it has to be last on the list. Well, like, you know I got what? one last thing to say. I, uh, I, I couldn't care less. Right. right and right. I'm going to tell you, I have done so many funny things not having toes. Well, like what? Um, 12 years ago. One of the organizations here puts together a, a, a thing called Dancing with the Bars. It's, it's had, it has evolved into Dancing for One in Ten, a child nonprofit organization. Uh-huh. 
And before I went up to do my dance in front of the six judges, they were asking us questions. And I said, do I get a little extra break for dancing with no toes against all these other contestants who have 10 toes? And they all looked and at each other and I went, no. <laughs> I, I just have a great time with it. I, I feel like you would be a great segment for America's Got Talent. They, they love <laughs> stories like that. Like they would show you dancing, you know, they would show the backstory and, and your daughter being there. Oh. And then they'd be like, and, and you'd be like, what? You know, like it would be that whole big I'd reveal. love to get up there and do a dance <laughs> with my dance partner from six years ago when I did it again in the All-Stars, got second place. Wow. And I'd love to take her and go on America's Got Talent, but I haven't got time. There's uh, so much uh I want to say so much as if uh, the LGBTQIAP is only a population that struggles with it, but a lot of drug use, especially in those who haven't. Did you struggle with that at some point? You know, drugs or alcohol? I went through phases in my life. Uh -huh. You know, when I was a teenager, we all got drunk. I went through a, a speed, as we called it back in college. Now what's, I forget what speed. An, an amphetamine. Okay, gotcha. An, uh, uh, makes uh, you upper. Uh, upper. An, yeah, an upper. Yeah. Yeah. And I probably did that three years. Wow. And then um, I didn't really do a whole lot of marijuana. The few times in my life I've done it, I get so introverted that I don't even like myself. Uh -huh. So why be that way? And I don't maybe five years, this is 15 years ago, I was a big Coke head. Mm -hmm. And a really good friend of mine that I used to do it with uh, was murdered maliciously. And I just sort of never did it again. Wow. Yeah. Another like major turning point yep. of like this yeah. is that it's that it's that it's like if I'm doing these drugs, these are the people that then I'm hanging around with and it could lead to this type yeah. of scenario. It was it was pretty traumatic for me when he, when I found out. <sighs> um, but drugs they, they just do nothing for me. Right, right. I mean it, I don't like I take no I take one prescription. I'm on uh, prep Travada, which is to inhibit me ever catching, uh, becoming HIV positive. Gotcha. Okay. And that's the only thing I take that's prescribed. Now, let me, cause, uh, so let me ask you this then, because at 68, very healthy, very strong, very lucid. What, how are you taking care of yourself? Uh, you know, besides playing racquetball, like, do you have a, well, I a haven't worked out in over five years. Okay. Thanks Cameron. And, uh, Start, started playing racquetball a couple of days. But I think over the years, when I moved here 20 years ago, I weighed 240 pounds. And I was a big boy. I had a 42 waist. And I just decided, and I had always thought this, but I decided to put it into effect. You must take care of number one first before you can help anyone else or do for others. And in these 20 years, I've lost 90 pounds. I'm down to 148. So I feel good about myself. I don't do a whole, I do take a lot of over-the-counter uh, vitamin C, B12, uh, co cognitive things, joint things. And I've asked my brother-in-law, a doctor, about all of them. He said, yeah, 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 you're fine. So I take care of myself. I actually got my results from my blood test and physical exam two weeks ago. Everything is perfect or better. What's the cognitive stuff that you take? I have a really rough time, ask anyone that knows me, 
remembering things. So if you say, hey, can we meet again tomorrow morning at 10? I will ask you to text me a reminder. So I, if, and it, I don't think it's cognitive, I think it's focus. I should wear blinders, because once I start a project without having blinders on, so many other things running a bar, as a lot of bar owners in this world know, it's hard to get them all done at once. So I'll be writing out a, something someone asked me for, and then all of a sudden I see a note over here, and I see a note over here, and the phone rings. So I'm easily distracted. Uh-huh. Um, I'm in the same way. I, I was just driving down here. Uh, I was driving with my buddy, and, I, and we were coming up with jokes, and I was like, you got to text me that because I'm horrible at remembering stuff, and I always have pen and paper on me. I mean, it's, you know, I know I can take notes on my cell phone, but uh, I find that when I put pen to pad, uh, I come up with more ideas. Agreed. Right? Agreed. And th- it's, it's just something more fluid about, and it's visual. When it's on my phone, it kind of disappears. I when agree. When it's on paper, it, it, it has a life, and it's something that I, I feel like I need to nurture. We 100% agree that uh, in the mornings when I wake up, I grab a cup of coffee, sit in the heat in my patio because I love the heat. And I'll pull my notepad out, which sits out there all the time, and I'll say, "Oh, I got to do this today," and I'll write it, and I'll go back to reading CNN or watching CNN. Uh, and before I know it, that page is done. Five five by seven pad, and it's filled with things to get done. Now, do you outside of so your morning routine? You wake up, coffee, any type of special coffee? No. Just a regular, regular morning coffee, blend. not bulletproof coffee, not putting no. MCG oil in there. A little uh, n- non-dairy flavored creamer, okay. sweet and low. And then I go have a few cigarettes, write my notes, read CNN, check <laughs> all of my accounts. <laughs> you said uh, a few cigarettes. How many cigarettes are we smoking? In a couple hours, <laughs> maybe five. <laughs> 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 I am a I've been smoking consistently right. since I was 13 years old. Got you. And 3 five and a half years ago, six and a half years ago, I quit for three and a half years. Well, then the the Pulse of Orlando massacre happened and I got a really good crew together and we were going to do a month after the massacre, a fundraiser for them. Now, what, what is that, the, the, the massacre? The Pulse of Orlando was a nightclub where okay. a guy oh, went in right. gotcha. and right. killed 49 right. people. Right, that was in Florida. In Florida, gotcha. in Orlando, gotcha. Florida. Yep, yep, yep. So I, it, it struck me. I was home. As soon as they reported it, I happened to be watching the news, and I just went crazy. What if it was my bar? What if it was all my friends? What if it, what if it, what if? So I decided right then I had to do a fundraiser. So getting back to smoking, after three and a half years, three days before the fundraiser happened on a Saturday, my uh, cameraman stood up in the middle of our last production meeting and said, Stacy, this is too much for me. I can't do this. And he got up and walked out. I grabbed a cigarette and smoked it and have been smoking again ever since. I did get him back a couple days yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, right? Know. I went, I, it was great. I raised $26,000 for them. I flew to Orlando, presented the check to the owners of the club, met all the survivors. It was, it was amazing. What, what's valuable in what you're, you're saying right now and what you've been saying is that when we go back to the L.A. riots, right, uh-huh. 
which um, which was incendiary and shocking it and was. overwhelming and eye-opening, right? It was it was so many all things, all the emotions. Um, and then you talk about the massacre in Florida, and, and, and now the feelings are coming back. Like, I can't believe it. What if this happened to me? Is that you took not only action, you took positive action. You asked, what can I do to help? What can I do so that, so that this doesn't happen again, right? Yeah. And I think that so many people, um, that, you know, everybody's talking about, like, because I do a lot of yoga and, you know, living in L.A. And, and you probably even see some of that here in Phoenix where everybody's preaching this, be calm, be still, be blah, blah, blah. And it's like there's a benefit to being angry. There's a benefit. Yes. Right, right. Well, right. Because, but, but you didn't react though. You responded. I did. Right. You're a responder. Yeah. yeah. Because people who react, they, there's a negative outcome to a yeah. reaction, right? Yeah. Those are the people who uh, start throwing rocks and cursing and setting things on fire, right? But you said, how do we respond to this tragedy? How do I respond? And then, how do I activate the community right how do i get others involved you know how do we come together it was it was the easiest fundraiser it was 10 hours it was live broadcast it was seen in three other continents besides the u.s and when i called the mayor when i called a couple of legislators uh an ex uh mayor of tempe i called they all showed up Wow. It was a, a big unity. Right. Um, I had more people here as guests than local celebrities. I uh, can't remember the name of the woman. What's the woman's name that's now? Uh, Mayor in, Chicago? Uh, no, the woman in Tucson that was, can't remember her name. Okay. She was going, but she couldn't get away from D.C. at the last minute. It was just amazing. That. That's just empowering, right? Yeah. And it's a reminder that we're not alone, and that feeling like a community and feeling people is a, is a comes down to picking up the phone and, like you said, calling people. Yep. And people showed up. Yep. Right. And and it's one of those things that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's so hard to call and ask for help, to ask for support. It makes us feel weak. But when people come together, we feel stronger. Yeah. As a result of that. Yeah, I agree, a hundred percent. It was, it was quite the deal. I uh, personally flew two of the employees that were there at the Pulse massacre that night. One, a manager, and they both spoke, and they were both amazed uh -huh. at how much support we had for that. And it wasn't just Stacy's support; it was community support. You, you seem to have a a. a great head on your shoulders as you know <laughs> I, for, you know I, i'm sure there's a lot i don't know i mean you smoking five cigarettes a day but um can you tell me a little bit about your parents because because you're because you're, you're you're financially successful you're respected in the community you have a family that loves you Right. Yep. Who are these people that created what uh, what what I'm sitting across from? So right now? this is quite the story, but I'll make it brief. My dad was in Germany in the war, and 
he went home for a visit a few months before he was to, you know, get out of the service. And he told his mom and dad that he wanted to find someone that would marry him so he could meet her in the United States and they could get married here. So at the time he was 32, his mom and dad went to my mom, my mother's mom and dad at 1.30 in the morning, woke them up and said, my son's here in town, town of 300 in a village in the mountains of Cyprus over in the Mediterranean, and he would like to marry your daughter and send her to the United States and he'll meet her when he gets out of the service. So my mother, my grandmother said, sure, everything's fine. We're all okay with this. They woke her up and introduced the two of them and said, the only thing is before you leave this country, you must be married. So a U.S. Naval officer married them at a naval base in Cyprus. Dad went back to war. Mom went home, got ready. A week later, she goes over to the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the area is, the very northern tip of Africa, and stayed there waiting to come over in a migrant ship to Ellis Island. And when she got here, of course, she didn't speak any English. And they said, what's your name at Ellis Island? And she said, Deepa, in Greek, what did he say? Somebody said, Onoma. And she said, Loisos. And they spelled that L-O-U-I-S. So everybody thinks I might be French. <laughs> so they migrated here in 44 and 45 from Cyprus. Uh, Dad worked with one of his brothers that was already here in New York for a few years, then moved to Newport News where my, me and my brother and sister were born. And when I was one year old, they bought a beer joint restaurant uh, almost not even 100 yards away from the main street gate of the biggest privately owned shipyard in the world where the riots happened that year. Wow. And uh, my father was a communicator with all of the, all of them were Greek owned. And there was probably 12 or 14 up on the strip. And he was the one that would communicate with the others. And the others were like, oh yeah, okay, George. So they were, they were pretty good. They were also church leaders in the Orthodox church that we belonged to. Daddy, of course, was on the board, and mother was on the, in the Greek Women's Philoptokos Society. Everybody looked up to everybody, though, in that community. It was really cool. Um, I'm glad they made me go to Greek school. Maybe not when they made me do it, but now I read, write, and speak 100% Greek. Wow. They were, uh, they were very meticulous about how they told us to live, but because of owning a restaurant that was open from... 9 a.m. to 2 in the morning. They couldn't be with us a whole lot, but they were very tolerant of us. We all got along, had dinner every day together. It was great. It was great. How many siblings do you have? One older brother and one younger sister. And you and all three of you still get along great oh, and yeah. very communal. Yeah. I had a buddy in middle school who was Greek, uh, Andrew Papadopoulos. Of course. Papadopoulos? <laughs> Papa, oh, Papa Christus. Andy Papa, I think. And his family was so welcoming and, and he was like he was our class president everybody yep. loved andy yeah and uh everybody loved his family and it was just all love and warmth yeah uh not to stereotype greeks that's to say they're all loving i'm sure there's some jerks out there but <laughs> but but from your story and and just you know uh uh having him in my like at my school great guy and, yeah. and great energy so and, and it sounds like you've pretty much have um 
uh, parodied your I have. what what your parents being on the board, yep. ha- having a business, yep. all those things. So you you really they really were role I, models. For may you. I throw something in there Absolutely. about my parents? Yeah. When you walked into my parents' restaurant, it was a long strip, narrow and long. And on the right was a booth, and then you walked behind the bar. On the left was a booth, followed by many booths all the way down the wall. And the booth on the right, when you walked in, fit about five or six people. I finally realized that these five guys that met there every two or three days were all gay guys. And they all worked at the men's clothing stores up and down the street or Leggett's department store. And he saved that table for them. And he kept an eye on them. And if anyone ever went up and started to harass or give those guys trouble, he would say, you need to leave. These guys aren't bothering you. Leave them alone. Go have fun somewhere else or get out of my bar. I was awestruck when I heard him say that. Awestruck. I'm glad you shared that story because, you know, it's like even with my story with the cop earlier. Yeah. I also have great stories about cops and yeah. um, and how, you know, they pull us over and crack jokes and let us go. And uh, and um, so and I think the same thing in the news <laughs> is like we just but we hear so much of the negative and we hear so much of the bashing and the hurting. negative is such sensationalism. Right. The good thing. You know, I do have to admit when I go through CNN news in the morning, they they have a couple or three in best biggest news mm-hmm. of fun things that happened, uh, you know, uh, a dog attacking a child and a guy running across the street to get him off and right. then the dog chased him and yeah. <laughs> attacked him. I mean, it it's I love those happy ending stories. Yeah. yeah. I really do. And how old is your mom now? No, she passed away she passed 7 away. years ago. Okay. All right. All right. They both he was 78 and she was 79, but they were 13 years apart in age. And so is your daughter following in your footsteps in some way? Because she's in her 40s now, right? She's 41. 41. She's been married since uh, 15 years. They have a 14-year-old grandchild of mine, and they have a 9-year-old grandson of mine. Wow. And uh, he is a construction man, uh, uh, what do you call it, Uh, head of a construction team. And they do really well for themselves, and they... Got my house free for me and my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> for for anyone out there uh, who may be struggling with LGBTQ issues, because uh, it, it ranges. This is not just about the coming out, right? It's no. there's so many other things. Yeah. Uh, is there anything we haven't talked about that you feel like needs you know, to be said? There is one thing. I will hear, and this doesn't just go for LGBTQ. Uh, this goes for black people, for Latino people. I've heard from people that at their workplace they are being treated less than equal. Yeah. And they're too scared to do anything about it. And I say, you know, this world is not perfect and everybody's going to be treated differently. If you can bear it, do if you can't go up the chain and talk to someone about it, even if it's them that's the the person being bad with you. But you can't just take it. You either have to accept it, which I don't recommend, or talk to someone in the company about it. And if it's that bad, you need to leave and go somewhere else for your own self-mental state. Absolutely. Uh, y- you know, because 
when you're in those situations, you think you don't have any other options. Right. When when I was in high school, I used to work at a fast food place, and, uh, and, and there was a a bit of mistreatment there. And because you were black. Uh, I, no, it was just you know what, it, I I could I actually I couldn't pinpoint what it was. It was from one person, um, and. Uh, and I think it had more to do with the person's character. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was yeah. just who this person was versus who I you was, were. right? Yeah. And um, and uh, but I, I I I I put up with it because I knew that my family needed the money, and I was I was thinking See? about the family. There you go. You know, and that gave me purpose. And I was yep. like, I can put up with this, yeah, because I won't be here. And I think that was the other part is I had hope, and I knew that one day that, you know, I was going to get a football scholarship, go to college, and I, I'll never have to deal with this again. Right. And I think that if you're in those situations and it's hard for you to bear it, it's like find that thing that gives you hope or that lightens it or that makes it – or at least it makes it bearable. Right. Or talk to someone about it. I, what I find is that – it's not so much about having something done about it as much as it is just having a place to talk about it, right? Well, any of those, any of the listeners out there that ever need help, I'm always up for helping anyone. Always. How, how can people? What's the great easiest way for people to reach you? Social media. Uh, social media. Oh. Stacy T. Lewis or Stacy's at Melrose. Okay. Uh, you can go onto my website, www.stacysatmelrose.com, and you can email me from there. Great. Um, I know this guy that helped me with my Instagram. He always gets me special messages that people want to know stuff. There's a whole lot of ways you can call here and leave a number. I always return calls. And just and if you and if you do that, just say, "Hey, I heard you on the before you you killed yourself pod before you kill yourself podcast." <laughs> and you know, uh, and I had some questions, blah 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 blah, and that way Stacy knows, uh, you know, the reference and everything like that. So I always feel like we um, there's always a listener out there who's on a precipice of of completing suicide, of taking their life. What would you say to that person? It, it, do you believe this that I have never ever been approached? in that situation, oh my God, Stacy, I can't do this anymore. I'm going home killing myself. I've never had that happen to me, but I wish it would. Um, I, I could show them that if you think nobody in this world loves you, I love you, I don't even know you, right. but I love you because you're a human being. I don't care if your skin's yellow, brown, red, white, I don't care. You're a human being, I like you, I love you. You can't think that way. You need to take some positive things that have happened to you in your life and make better out of those. And quit thinking about nothing but the negative. Mm. I'd love to have that. I'm going to tell you one quick thing that Please. I do. Yeah. My, uh, my regular doctor, when he has a patient that loses a digit or a hand or a foot, he calls me and asks me to go visit them in the hospital and give them hope and dance around on no toes and say, 
you'll get over it. You'd be in a wheelchair, but you'd be able to get through lines a lot faster. <laughs> make a joke out of it. Have a good time. <laughs> it's so true. I, I, I just finished his book, uh, Unbroken, about uh-huh. this guy who was a prisoner of war. Uh-huh. And he was in there for almost, I think, two years. And he's been beaten and starved. Yeah. You know, prisoner yeah. of war is like, the, you, I can't even imagine. I can't either. And he said uh, there was, a, I think, a chicken or a rooster that was – that just he saw it every day and it was like this goofy little chicken and it was kind of like the camp's chicken and he said that was the only thing that kept him going was that this little chicken that and they i forget the name that they gave the chicken but it was a small little glimmer of life in this isn't it great environment to be able to yeah make that little silly chicken keep you alive stacy lewis thank you so much for being on the podcast it was great to have you. Uh, remember, for you listeners out there, that this is not a substitute for you calling a therapist, for you uh, getting help, for you talking to a loved one, for you asking questions. Um, talk to someone, anybody, a stranger. You can always message me. Uh, uh, I have the Instagram before you kill yourself. Um, and also my personal Instagram, leoflowers2000. Yeah, Stacy, you can contact. There are outlets. There are people who want to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon.